the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside. Good evening and welcome. This is the Science Inside where we bring you the latest news, stories and events happening in the world of science and technology. I am, of course, your host, Bridget Lepere, and this evening we are tackling a rather sensitive issue uh, on legal and ethical concerns relating to the regulation of hyperandrogenism in sport and a case in point is the Casta Semenya story, which has been weighing really heavily on many South Africans' hearts. Semenya was told by the International Association of Athletics Federation, IAAF, to take medication to lower her testosterone levels. And since then, she has challenged the athletics body on this decision. But the Court of Arbitration for Sport reject, rejected her challenge. But we have... Um, more on the story a bit later in the show and in Unscience we look at why some people are more inclined to taking a dog as a preferred pet of choice and why a dog is more equal than other pets in the hierarchy of pet ownership. Later on we delve deeper into this topic of hyperandrogenism which I will unpack as well and in the story we look at an interesting case of what determines gender and sexuality and what are the side effects of taking hormone suppressing drugs and all that a bit more in the show but right now we do it as we usually do we get into the latest news with campion zarima this is science headline in your news making headlines this week Young South African scientists shine at U.S. Intel International Science Fair and Botswana lifts ban on elephant hunting. Good evening, I'm Campion Jarima. Three high school South African students won prizes at the International Science and Engineering Fair, which took place in Phoenix, Arizona, from the 12th to the 17th of May 2019. The three top achievers were selected to participate in the Intel ISAF following last October's ESCOM Expo for Young Scientists International Science Fair. Herotek Mita from Bryanston High School, who won the USAID Second Place Award for Innovation and Development in the Energy and Water category, was awarded a cash prize of 43,200 Rand, equivalent in US dollars. Meta's project was titled Increasing the Efficiency of Solar Panels by Glazing, which aims to increase the overall energy efficiency of solar panels. This would be achieved by modifying standard solar panels to extract the thermal energy that would otherwise be disposed of as waste heat. This also has an adverse impact on the solar panel's electrical performance and lifespan. His project also investigated if coil and magnets could generate electrical energy using wind as a free, energy-efficient, renewable resource. Renee Edeling from, from the Free State won 7,200 Rand in the physics and astronomy category for her project that investigates how vehicle dents, dimples, and vehicle dents or dimples applied on certain areas of the bodywork of a heavy truck vehicle can be used to decrease the aerodynamic drag for the purpose of increasing fuel efficiency and cost effectiveness. While Shazia Leha from the Eastern Cape was awarded 7,200 Rand in the chemistry category for her organic biodegradable alternative to plastic project, which is explored 
which is an explored alternative way of disposing plastic material that is less harmful towards humans, animals, and the environment. This science fair featured more than 1,800 of the top science and engineering high school students from 80 countries and regions around the world who all had groundbreaking scientific projects to present. After a five-year suspension, the government of Botswana has decided again to lift the ban on elephant hunting, according to a statement issued during this week by the Ministry of Environment, Natural Resource Conservation and Tourism. The ban was introduced in 2014 as an attempt to save declining wildlife populations. The ruling Botswana Democratic Party has since been lobbying to overturn the ban, saying elephants have become unmanageable in some areas. While conservationists estimate the southern African country has about 130,000 elephants, some parliamentarians say the number is much higher and has been causing problems for small-scale farmers. Botswana is home to almost one-third of Africa's remaining savanna elephants, which have largely escaped poaching, but the government had expressed concerns of how elephant populations have increased uncontrollably, posing a threat to farmer livelihoods. The Botswana government has, however, countered this, stating that elephant hunting will be reinstated in an orderly and ethical manner and in accordance with the laws and regulations that govern wildlife, conservation, hunting and licensing. According to the International Union for Conservation of Nature, IUCN, there are currently 400,000 elephants in Africa, with the population having been decimated largely due to poaching for ivory. This week's news has been sourced from News24 and BBC Africa. Recapping your top stories this week, young South African scientists shine at the U.S. Intel International Science Fair and Botswana lifts ban on elephant hunting. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Wow, Campion, thank you for bringing that story to us. I really enjoy uh, the fact that these young people are given an opportunity to go and compete on an international scale. And also, it it just gives us greater prospects as to producing uh, better scientists or future scientists. And yeah, we can only go forward from here. What do you think? Absolutely. I think the future of science in South Africa is in good hands. I mean, if you look at some of the projects that these kids were coming up with, it's quite astonishing. Some of the things I haven't ever, ever even thought about it at all, but they're coming up with these projects and they seem to be very well thought out. Yeah, and I'm really impressed by this uh, story of uh, aerodynamics um, and looking at the dents in cars and how that impacts on the aerodynamity of uh, a vehicle. I think that is quite impressive for high school learners. Yeah, yeah. Uh, To me, that's kind of like microscience. (laughs) Like you're looking at the specifics of of science to its core. And I've never thought of uh, how the aerodynamics could come into play when it comes to vehicles. But, well, there it is. This is a science science project from a student in South Africa. I guess making um, vehicles lighter, maybe, you know, the tread (laughs) on our our roads. And just lastly, I'm, I'm really confused by the Botswana government. Why did they ban the hunting of, of, of elephants and then unbanning 
you know, um, what's what's up with the back and forth? Yeah, well, when they banned it in 2014, um, they were saying the uh, elephants are running out because of poaching. And, you know, poaching has been a major crisis in not only South Africa or Botswana, but in Africa as a continent. Sure. But now they're lifting the ban because they're saying we have too many elephants. And uh, we're thinking that these, these elephants are actually um, giving a problem to the local farmers in Botswana. So they're thinking if we lift the ban, we can control the way people hunt for elephants and therefore make it an economic activity while at the same time safeguarding the farmers around the country. But I guess it's it's just senseless killing of innocent animals really because there are some countries all over the you know, all over the world who mm-hmm. do not have elephants and they could do with the extra <laughs> elephants don't you think rather than controlling elephant populations yeah, in this you're mean actually manner. right well zimbabwe actually sold i don't know how many elephants but they sold for 10 million us dollars which is the equivalent of 140 rand 140 million rand yeah and that was not so long ago so i think maybe if they tried that as well that could work i don't know yeah Well, that was all for the news this week. But remember to get in touch with us on social media and we are VowFM. And you may also tweet us at VowFM, hashtag Science Inside. The podcast is up on iTunes and vits.journalism.co.za forward slash science. And our WhatsApp line is 084-078-4912. Up next, we get into our first story which is on the regulation of hyperandrogenism in sports and the ethical implications after the break this is the science inside Welcome back. You're still with the science inside. And before the break, we touched briefly on the regulation of hyperandrogenism in sports. Now, hyperandrogenism, also known as androgen excess, is a medical, medical condition characterized by excessive levels of androgens in the female body. Now, the male hormone testosterone is also a type of androgen which is uh, vital in the development of hyperandrogenism as high levels of this male hormone can cause this condition. Now, in sports, female athletes who find themselves with higher than acceptable levels of this testosterone are now under scrutiny and are being subjected to unfair discrimination by the sporting body IAAF. The body now has made the regulation of testosterone levels being compulsory uh, for all athletes should they still want to compete on an international level. South Africa's Golden Girl Casta Simeya story, which recently made news headlines on this regulation, prompted a discussion on global injustices in sport. And our reporter, uh, Masibulele Lunika, attended the talks which were held in Parktown recently. The South African Medical Association, together with the South African National Bioethics Committee, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, and the Steve Biko Center for Bioethics, recently hosted an indaba on the injustices, prejudice and discrimination on a global level in relation to the IAAF regulations and the Court of Arbitration for Sports findings on the challenge by Casta Simenia. 
Head of Department of Private Law at the University of Pretoria, Professor Steve Cornelius, said there are a number of concerns over how female athletes have been treated. Cornelius, who was appointed to the IAAF's disciplinary tribunal last year, took the decision to resign from the body in protest of its ruling and said he cannot associate with an entity that insists on ostracizing certain individuals. He and a number of medical experts stand firmly against the IAAF's ruling, which they are actively pursuing a fight against. Speaking at the event, he said it was not just unethical, but illegal and highly prejudiced, all from the way the tests were conducted on the athletes. When, when I considered these regulations, even the previous version uh, and the current version, there were two issues that immediately came up for me that I felt was problematic about the whole way this uh, matter is being addressed and also the way in which specifically the IAAF has gone about in uh, resolving or trying to do with the matter. So the first one is that I have serious legal and ethical concerns about the way in which the research was conducted and uh, how they came to these results on which they base these regulations, or at least purport to base the regulations. Secondly, there are very serious fundamental rights concerns relating to the way in which a number of female athletes have been treated. In actual fact, in the way that female athletes have been treated for the past hundred years, uh, and this is just a continuation of that process. And I will start off with the first one, because for me, the way in which the research was conducted and approached already highlights uh, a human rights violation that, that occurred and also highlights, uh, I think, a bit of a mentality behind uh, this whole issue of you know, just dealing with matters and not really thinking about the human beings behind what we are doing and how it affects them. Now, just very quickly, uh, I assume that not everybody might be quite familiar with how the world of sport is structured, and I need to just very quickly touch on something so that you understand the discussion that I'm going to follow right now. But right at the top is the International Olympic Committee, which incidentally is also now starting to grapple with this issue again. And my big concern is that if this ruling by the Court of Oppression for Sport remains unchallenged, what, what happened there might fall into the International Olympic Committee. So they stand at the top, two of them are affiliated on the one hand, National Olympic Committees uh, that I have here, and you've got the international federations like the IAAF and FIFA, and then you have national associations that are again affiliated to their international federations, but also to their national Olympic Committees. Now, someone to decide of this, in what is supposed to be an independent body, we have the World Anti-Doping Authority and the National Anti-Doping Authority. And it is this aspect that is really crucial for me uh, in, in this discussion. Because the World Anti-Doping Authority should be a completely separate independent um, body that actually sits uh, on the sports federations to ensure that they enforce the anti-doping measures correctly, uniformly and in a fair manner. Okay. One of the problems, if you go and uh, uh, search on all the websites where the people are involved, 
we see a lot of cross-contamination between these bodies and these bodies. So there already is a questionable aspect of, of independence. Cornelius says there is more than enough regulation globally to prohibit the sharing of any medical information without consent, especially in conducting of any biomedical research. When athletes uh, enter into agreements to participate in world championships, they will also give a, a consent to want to conduct these anti-doping tests. Part of that consent that they give is also that Water will return to the group, keep these samples for up to 10 years. They can retest later for substances, but they can also conduct research on anti-doping matters. Right. So what happens in practice? After 2011, IWF World Championship that was held in Dago, in South Korea, the IWF instructed all athletes at some stage during the event, they must report to the doping station to have that sample taken. And that's because at the time, they were developing what is called the biological passport, where an athlete's biological profile is developed over a period of time, and if suddenly there's some anomaly, it is an indication that there might be doping or some other issues. So in 2011, all athletes went for blood samples, in addition to the urine sample. The same thing happened in 2013. So when the Court of Arbitration was called deferred, the duty chance ruling and said, well, we're not convinced, but come back with new evidence. What the IWF did was to obtain these blood samples and basically pass it on to their medical team, uh, the medical commission, and they conducted in the research to determine the hormone levels of the athlete. Now, the IWF argued that this is doping related. In the duty chance case, one of the arguments against the IWF was this is a form, this interferes in the doping process. And the World Anti-Doping Authority expressly there stated this has nothing to do with doping. The regulation for NIFA and Rotterdam all maybe the correct time to cycle differences of sex development as they have it, has nothing to do with anti-doping. Okay, so there's the first problem. Um, in other words, that raises the question, if biological samples that have been collected for one purpose, by one entity, is passed on to another entity to do research for which consent has not been given, is that a lawful use of, of that sample? The ruling has been seen to be targeting women especially, a growing concern as this has gone on for a very long time, according to the professor, who says everyone must be treated equally before the law. Then there's the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And very interestingly, in a number of places, this convention specifically requires um, human rights and freedoms uh, in all fields, but it includes political, economic, social, cultural, and the participation in sports are included at least twice in that convention. That women must participate on an equal footing with men. So if you do have these um, two categories, then they must be equal in all ways. So to have regulations that impact only on the women's participation 
will not be in accordance with the obligations in terms of this treaty. According to Cornelius, the IAAF has no grounds to argue that this decision is a fair discrimination. The Court of Arbitration for Sport has confirmed this is discrimination. Now it is important to understand that not all forms of discrimination are unlawful. Whenever you distinguish between two people, you are effectively discriminating. But discrimination is unlawful when it is unfair and you're not protecting the legitimate interest. So the question is, what is the interest that's being protected? When you have to weigh whether it's fair or not, there must be a balance of interest. So on the one hand, we are violating fundamental human rights of athletes that I will show you as we go through. On the other hand, the IAAF itself has said that athlete has a right to win or a right to participate internationally. But the moment they start to argue, well, we need to violate these athletes' rights because they are winning and these athletes are quit. To oppose fundamental rights to dignity, to privacy, um, not to be discriminated against. So they are elevating, they are creating a pseudo-right when they exist. So just that balancing should mean there shouldn't be any argument on the side of the IWF that this could be fair discrimination. The professor says if Custer was of a different origin, we most likely wouldn't have these discussions. But you subject people to research without consent. You subject people to medical treatment without free consent. So, so much for ethical values. Um, regardless of age, gender or race, no gender, race or religious or other kind of unfair discrimination. And again, regardless of gender. So, in its own constitution, it gives this commitment, but it seems it's just worse. And going further, the Olympic Charter is against any form of discrimination, promotion of women, equality, sports for all. That is really so important. Development of sports for all. As long as you look like us and you act like us and you don't win. That is effectively um, with the previous version of regulations. Um, I, I wrote a research article setting out all these things. And the title I gave to the article was, you can play as long as you don't win. Because that is effectively what this is boiling down to. If, if Costa Semenya looked differently, if she was a, a blonde bombshell, you know, if she looked like some of the Russian or Scandinavian athletes, or if she didn't win, um, we wouldn't be having this debate today. And that is the problem I have with this. You're seeking out people because they are different. And there lies the big ethical concerns I have with these regulations and the fundamental rights concerns that I have with it. Article 5 of the IAAF Constitution states that medical intervention may only be carried out if the person involved gives free and informed consent. Cornelius also refers to Article 8, which talks about protecting individuals' privacy, as well as the prohibition of any compulsory medical intervention. Now, taking a healthy athlete and effectively coalescing her into Taking hormone treatment, I think, is not just of minor importance, but it certainly is a compulsory medical intervention. They can argue she has a choice. There is no choice. You can say, well, she can... I thought it was extremely arrogant the other day when they said, well, she can run your name. That's her choice. And what happened 
and to her and the other athletes. They show up at the World Championship and simply because someone does not like the way they look or the way they run, they are now suddenly confronted with a team of medical experts and lawyers who tell them, well, conform or you can go out. Now, if you're 18 or 19 or even 20 years old, that to me is coercion. No, no court in, in any civilized country will uphold the contract under those conditions. But we are upholding regulations which basically do that. Also, Article 2 then provides, it says the interest of welfare of each human being takes precedence over the interests of society. So when it comes again, bring the discrimination aspect into it. If you look at the biomedical aspects, the uh, European Convention on Human Rights and uh, Biomedicine says the individual's interest always outweighs society's interest. And this is precisely because in a lot of Western countries, uh, up to the 1920s, people were put in asylum simply because they were not what society deemed people would be. The professor and his counterparts also presented these cases in front of the court of arbitration for sports, which rejected them. So the, the court of arbitration for sports basically uh, dismissed this argument and considered all the evidence that was collected in spite of the lack of informed consent. Okay, and that for me is an issue that goes beyond just the the issue of um, difference of sex development it goes to the fundamental root of human dignity, of privacy, um, of, of every athlete who participates at the World Championship. Because you are basically compelled to give yourself both for dumping control and they deal with it without any concern as to the privacy of these athletes. Professor Amis Dai, director of the Steve Biko Center for Bioethics, read a note from Professor Joel Dave, head of division of endocrinology at the Grutteskur Hospital and the University of Cape Town, who was also part of the 19 experts testifying in defense of Casta Semenya at the Court of Arbitration for Sports in Lausanne, Switzerland. There are multiple problems with the study and stretching from unethical to actually almost fraudulent concerns and this resulted in a call for retraction of this paper due to the circadian and cyclic fluctuations in the blood levels of testosterone the blood samples should be collected a between 8 to 10 10 a.m and b where the subject menstruates between the third and eighth day of the menstrual cycle interaction with certain other medications has to be taken into account especially if the patient is taking estrogens and or progesterone or glucocorticoids. A washout period from these treatments should therefore be considered prior to investigation. They further, further say in their new regulation, um, and it has been emphasized in the late press, that testosterone levels in the high male range can be brought down quite easily to less than 5 nanomoles per liter using the oral contraceptive. However, the methods of collection of the samples used for the study that the IWAF has actually relied on did not take any of these factors into account. Athletes were allowed to have their blood taken at any time of the day. Uh, they could be on the oral contraceptive and the phase of the menstrual cycle 
was not taken into consideration. So the samples taken and used in the study may not represent the normal physiology of a specific athlete. This would be reasonably okay if all athletes followed a standardized protocol. However, nothing was standardized and all athletes did things very differently, thereby giving measurements that are not interpretable. There has also been lots said on, of the statistical methods used to analyze the data. However, this is all rendered superfluous if the actual data that is being analyzed is uninterpretable and possibly rubbish in, rubbish out. In case you've just missed the first half of the show, you can also follow us on Vow FM and uh, on, on Facebook as Vow FM. And you can also tweet us at Vow FM hashtag Science Inside and you'll find out a bit more on the story that was playing out just a few seconds ago. But next up, we find out why 15 years later, dogs are still a man's best friend in unscience. Stay listening. This is the Science Inside. Welcome back. You're still on the science inside and we are in the, you know, in, in the half of the show. And uh, in this week's segment of Unscience, we look at the stranger side of research and we dig deeper to finding out about why there's such a deep affection between men and dog. And today's Unscience was produced by Maschaba Khanyapa. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. This might not be known by all of us. Um, it's not nationwide information, but apparently many families around the world keep dogs as pets for re- various reasons. And in as much as people fear dogs, they are rated third in the most popular pets category according to life science and other studies. With that being said, it would be really interesting to find out how many people own dogs. What do you think, Bridget? Well, Maschaba, yeah, there are various reasons as to why people would, you know, prefer a dog over a cat. Well, I prefer dogs, uh, but I don't necessarily have my own dog, but there's a dog at home. <laughs> okay, nice. And have you thought about what factors may have led other people or yourself to picking a dog as a pet of choice? I've never really looked that much into it, but I mean, if you look at a puppy and its puppy eyes, they're just so cute and adorable. And I mean, they can grow on you. So I think maybe it's one of those things you just, you know, you just have a love for an animal. It just, you know, it just, yeah, you just sort of um, are inclined to to like it because of its looks. Mm. Interesting. Well, I have something interesting to tell you. Did you know that while some humans are passionate dog lovers, some people are just genetically related to dogs, and that's what informs their decision in choosing one as a preferred choice? Oh, oh wait. What do you mean genetically made up? I mean, do we have the same genetic makeup? I mean, but it's really fascinating. I, I want to find out more. Yes, it's pretty cool and amazing that owning a dog is influenced by our genetic makeup. What's also interesting is that 84% of DNA is shared between humans and dogs, according to the study of evolution. Apparently, our genes and theirs were shaped by evolution and correspond to diet, behavior, and disease. Sure, this is really interesting, and it also makes sense as to why 
dogs love men so much and could even spend the entire day waiting up for you at home even when they even know actually if you're running late absolutely the bond between men and dog is asians and research shows that the connection runs deeper than we actually think i mean dogs were the first animals to be domesticated leading to them having a close relationship with humans for at least 15,000 years now dogs are the only common pets in society and they increase the well-being and health of their owners a study was also conducted to prove the heritability of dog ownership using information from 35,000 and 35 twin pairs hmm that is really interesting and i mean 15,000 years i mean yeah that <laughs> that should point to why we there's such a deep affection and a, and a love between men and men and dog yeah, that's quite a long time. Well, to determine why there is such a strong kinship between dogs and humans, researchers from Sweden and Britain compared dog ownership with the genetic makeup of twins by using data from the Swedish Twin Registry, the largest registry of twins in the world. To their surprise, the results from the science report revealed that a person's makeup appears to have a significant influence on the preference. Although dogs and other pets are common household members across the globe, little is known about their impact and on our daily lives and health. Wow. Are they saying little is known? Because I've seen yeah, quite a, a number of you know, these studies that prove that dogs actually have, can have you know, an, 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 a significant impact on you know, the well-being of, of, of human beings. I know that in, in America, in, a, in certain hospitals, they actually take dogs and other pets to um, you know, clinical wards where people are actually suffering from certain diseases or conditions mm. and they actually improve uh, their mental well-being and essentially their health in general. Mm. But how how do they use these twins to show us um, the choice of whether you, you should be getting a dog or a cat or and, and how it actually influences the person's genetic makeup? Well, a science research was shown that studying twins is a well-known method for disentangling the influences of environment and genes on our biology and behavior. Identical twins share the same entire genome and the fraternal twins on average share only half of the genetic variation and that's how they determined how our genes and the, the dog's genes relate to us. Well, I'm truly blown away by, by the study. I still, I think maybe I'd need to look a bit more into the study just to understand it a bit further. But well, for tonight we don't have, um, you know, more evidence. But uh, yeah, tell me more. Do you have more? Well, researchers also found that the concordance rates of dog ownership to be much larger in, in identical twins than in fraternal twins, supporting the view that gen genetics indeed play a role in the choice of owning a dog. Although these kind of twin studies cannot tell us exactly which genes are involved, senior author of the study and associate professor in epidemiology, Patrick Magnuson, says that at least for the first time, genetics and environment play almost equal roles in determining dog ownership so the next step that scientists will be taking us through is to identify which genetic variants affects this choice and how they relate to personality traits and other factors this week's unscience was sourced from life science it's unusual unlikely unscience unusual unlikely 
on science. You're listening to the Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome back. You're still on the Science Inside and I am your host, Bridget Liberi. Now we're going to the second story for tonight and we are looking at the science behind sexuality sexuality and the side effects of taking hormone suppressing drugs and um well we are still on the issue of the regulation of high levels of the androgen of androgen and suppressing of the testosterone levels in athletes we now look at how science determines the male and female genders and how science could be blurring the lines a bit as uh, the subjects of 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 sports are now being subjected to you know tests and being um, given drugs to take to suppress high levels of testosterone levels in their their blood or in their uh, bodies. We also take a look at the side effects of taking these drugs designed to lower these testosterone levels, but in in particular, uh, the long-term effects that they could have, especially when they have never been tested on human beings before, and what the conclusive evidence is as far as the risks are concerned. Masibulele Lunika has more. Kenya's Olympic 800-meter bronze medalist Margaret Wambui can feel her career slipping away from her with no idea when or if she will be able to compete internationally again. The 24-year-old is one of several star female athletes affected by the IAAF ruling this month that requires women with high levels of testosterone to take medication to suppress it or compete with men if they are not willing to do so. According to Professor Wayne Derman, who is also the director of the Institute of Sport and Exercise Medicine at Stellenbosch University and is a past president of the South African Sports Medicine Association, this ruling has far more consequences for the affected athletes than meets the eye. The IAAF document speaks not only of um, oral contraceptive agents, they also speak about a variety of different hormones, predominantly estrogen, and injectable agents, for example, GnRH antagonists. So um, a lot of the media uh, and the statements that I've seen as rebuttals from the IAAF speak only about oral contraceptives, and it's almost um, uh, minimized uh, in the media as why make a fuss of um, many people are taking the oral contraceptive pill. But we as a sports physician are often called on to extend prescriptions, to replace lost or expired prescriptions, and most importantly, we have already asked to be at the front line of the management of the side effects produced by these agents. I must say that I have seen these side effects firsthand and some of them can are not necessarily benign, and I have a number of observations about these side effects. Firstly, they are not benign when you start seeing them in terms of a high-performing athlete. So, for example, significant hot flushes, persistent fatigue, significant weight gain, and with the resultant inducement into overtraining, for a uh, high-performance athlete. The side effect profiles definitely seem to be, in my opinion, minimized um, by the IAAF's uh, retorts. 
Um, and uh, it's often said like, oh, you know, this is just an oral contraceptive pill. But um, as I was hoping that Mark was, uh, that uh, Joel was going to point out, there are absolutely, and I'm talking about the management of DSD, uh, patients with DSD, there are no established protocols that we could find, particularly with respect to athletes who have uh, uh, DSDs. In fact, it is my understanding that there are multiple agents that are used. And in fact, sometimes you cannot just reduce the testosterone to that target level of under 5 nanometers per liter by sticking to the what we call the normal dose. And that that has to actually be increased significantly in order to reduce testosterone to the target range of under 5 um, nanomoles per liter. According to him, not much attention is being given to the supposed medicine the athletes are supposed to be taking, which has not even been researched and proven to work, as well as the ethical implications from a medical point of view. This rule having gone through now, I'm asked that I would agree as a physician who might be writing a prescription or administering uh, a medication, that I'm going to agree that I will use an off-label use of a medication, which is a oral contraceptive or hormones or others, that it's used secondly in a non-evidence-based manner where there are no established protocols that have been peer-reviewed and published, that there are um, established side effect profiles but in the absence of a medical disease, and again I remind you that this is a person who is an athlete, not a patient, therefore there cannot be any health benefits, but only risks. And the introduction of this agent can be described therefore as experimental in the setting. And we're using this kind of experimental setting really to guide treatment here and, um, and to actually base uh, rules and regulations um, on. And on top of it all is uh, that the athlete would have been focused into doing it. So my, whilst my concerns for the patient is, is paramount, I'm also concerned for myself uh, as a physician. For example, would I be actually putting myself at risk if I was to do this and now I was to ask to help an athlete would I be acting unethically? And if I'm, un- if I'm acting unethically, what about my malpractice insurance? Would that actually hold as well? The professor stresses that the athletes are in fact not patients, thus they do not need any medication. So I'm stressing the word patient here because um, we're not prescribing for patients. These are athletes. These are athletes who are quite happy with the way they are. This is not a condition where they have come to a doctor in order to be treated. And I'm going to use a quote, not from Pastor, but actually from uh, Margaret Wambui, who is the Kenyan athlete. And she says, and I'm going to quote her here, I am not going to take medication because I am not sick. And these are chemicals, you know, that you are putting into your body. You don't know how it will affect you later.
And I couldn't put that any better in medical terms to encapsulate what it is that um, I want to bring across. The fourth concern regarding these agents are, uh, and the athletes are that are these athletes a unique population? And I would argue that yes, they are, especially related to trotting and the risk of deep venous thrombosis uh, while they are traveling. And in fact, um, there has been a recent paper, um, as recent as uh, December um, last year, which actually shows that when you look at in the form of a review, the uh, risk of thromboembolism can be much higher in an athlete compared to somebody who is sedentary. Again, you've got another factor that is somebody who not only is uh, very physically active and running at very high speed, high workloads, where there's microscopic damage to the endothelium or used by the uh, muscles of the legs, but there um, is also the relative dehydration and the issues caused by stasis uh, in long international travel. So I would argue that they are a unique population in terms of the side effects. Derman says there is quite a high level of coercion in the way this has all been done. The athletes don't want to take these agents. So literally they would be coerced into taking uh, these agents. And again, I'm going to, to try and explain the coercion. I'm going to quote from Webway again, who said, I am now worried about my career. This has heat pressure on my family for who she is the only breadwinner. But to actually understand the level of coercion here is, is important in, in my opinion. Much to the shock, scientists actually argue that there is no direct relationship between high performance in sports and high levels of testosterone and that it all has to do with the amount of effort and practice one puts in in getting good at their craft. Professor Michael Pepper from the Institute of Cellular and Molecular Medicine at the University of Pretoria believes that there needs to be much greater effort to make people aware of how complex the human body and mind evolves from birth and how also gender and sexual diversity fits into all of it. For instance, the fact that an athlete like Semenya identifies as lesbian may give justification to some for the IAAF ruling. According to Pepper, the lack of understanding of gender identities and sexuality in society often leads to gender dysphoria, which is a condition where one may feel one's emotional and psychological identity as male or female uh, to be contrary to one's biological sex. He said the consequences could be anxiety, depression and even suicide attempts. Either by choice, because people are confused and are not able to associate their gender identity with their physical sex. The language of the parents may be impaired, may be low self-esteem, and very importantly, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, and even suicidal attempts. I'm part of a gender uh, of a gender and career assignment clinic at a super hospital uh, at the University of Victoria. And uh, we see patients every month, and um, we do have to treat these patients. 
the problem is that there is a very high rate of suicide among patients who have gender dysphoria. Various studies estimate between about 10 to 20 percent of gender dysphoria will commit suicide. So it is something that does require our attention. According to Professor Pepper, our DNA is not only inherited from our parents, but it also gets altered by our surroundings. According to him, determinants of gender and sexual diversity include biological sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. Our gender expression in the way we live our lives is dependent on all three of these. But also, very importantly, it's context-dependent. It depends on the society we find ourselves. There are some societies which are more liberal and allow people to express themselves fully, and there are some societies which are less liberal and allow people and don't allow people to express them fully. And people are often persecuted in those environments. In case you're only joining us now. Earlier on, we looked at a story or a discussion that was held in Parktown where they were talking about the regulation of hyperandrogenism in sports and the ethical implications resulting to the regulating of um, hormone levels or androgen levels in female athletes. And in Unscience, we found out that our genetic makeup and the environment actually determines why we would choose a dog over a cat or any other animal as a preferred pet. And lastly, we tackled the effects and risks associated with taking of hormone suppressing drugs and the science behind sexuality and with the likes of Casta Semenya and other athletes being affected by this condition of hyperandrogenism and being subjected to taking hormone suppressing drugs. But that is, that is where we leave it for this week. A big thank you to all of our guests who are featured on tonight's show, including Professor Wayne Derman, Professor Michael Pepper, Professor Steve Cornelius, and Professor Amers Dai. Our team behind the scenes is production by Masibulele Lunika, Masichaba Kanyaba, Campion Jarima, and of course, tagged by Gudwano Sirame. You can find this week's show on podcastjournalism.co.za forward slash science and social media. We are on Facebook as VAUFM, and you can also tweet us at VAUFM. Hashtag Science Inside. The Science Inside is produced by the Vitz Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. Goodbye. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. The Science Inside Podcast.